I'd say there are several answers to that, Duncan said in his soft, detached voice. For instance, the first one I killed was 24, so you could say it took him 24 years to die. Like, yeah, thought clever Vincent with the sarcasm of a teenager, though he had to admit that this obvious answer hadn't occurred to him. The other was 32, I think. A police car drove by the opposite way. The blood in Vincent's temples began pounding, but Duncan didn't react. The cops showed no interest in the stolen explorer. Another way to answer the question, Duncan said, is to consider the elapsed time from the moment I started until their hearts stopped beating. That's probably what you meant. See, people want to put time into easy-to-digest frames of reference. That's valid, as long as it's helpful. Knowing the contractions come every twenty seconds is helpful. So is knowing that the athlete ran a mile in three minutes fifty-eight seconds, so he wins the race. Specifically how long it took them tonight to die. Well, that isn't important, as long as it wasn't fast. A glance at Vincent. I'm not being critical of your question. No, Vincent said, not caring if he was critical. Vincent Reynolds didn't have many friends and could put up with a lot from Gerald Duncan. I was just curious. I understand, but I just didn't pay any attention. But the next one, I'll time it. The girl? Tomorrow? Vincent's heart beat just a bit faster. He nodded. Later today, you mean? It was after midnight. With Gerald Duncan, you had to be precise, especially when it came to time. Right. Hungry Vincent had nosed out clever Vincent, now that he was thinking of Joanne, the girl who'd die next. Later today. The killer drove in a complicated pattern back to their temporary home in the Chelsea district of Manhattan, south of Midtown, near the river. The streets were deserted. The temperature was in the teens and the wind flowed steadily through the narrow streets. Duncan parked at a curb and shut the engine off, set the parking brake. The men stepped out. They walked for a half block through the icy wind. Duncan glanced down at his shadow on the sidewalk, cast by the moon. I've thought of another answer, about how long it took them to die. Vincent shivered again, mostly but not only from the cold. When you look at it from their point of view, the killer said, you could say that it took forever. 7.01 a.m. What is that? From his squeaky chair in the warm office, the big man sipped coffee and squinted through the bright morning light toward the far end of the pier. He was the morning supervisor of the tugboat repair operation located on the Hudson River north of Greenwich Village. There was a Moran with a bum diesel due to dock in 40 minutes, but at the moment the pier was empty, and the supervisor was enjoying the warmth of the shed, where he sat with his feet up on the desk, coffee cradled against his chest. He wiped some condensation off the window and looked again. What is it? A small black box sat by the edge of the pier, the side that faced Jersey. It hadn't been there when the facility had closed at six yesterday, and nobody would have docked after that. Had to come from the land side. 
There was a chain-link fence to prevent pedestrians and passers-by from getting into the facility. But as the man knew from the missing tools and trash drums, go figure, if somebody wanted to break in, they would. But why leave something? He stared for a while, thinking. It's cold out, it's windy, the coffee's just right. Then he decided, oh, hell, better check. He pulled on his thick gray jacket, gloves and hat, and, taking a last slug of coffee, stepped outside into the breathtaking air. The supervisor made his way through the wind along the pier, his watering eyes focused on the black box. The hell is it? The thing was rectangular, less than a foot high, and the low sunlight sharply reflected off something on the front. He squinted against the glare. The white-capped water of the Hudson sloshed against the pilings below. Ten feet away from the box, he paused, realizing what it was. A clock, an old-fashioned one, with those funny numbers, Roman numerals, and a moon face on the front. Looked expensive. He glanced at his watch and saw the clock was working. The time was accurate. Who'd leave a nice thing like that here? Well, all right, I got myself a present. As he stepped forward to pick it up, though, his legs went out from under him and he had a moment of pure panic, thinking he'd tumble into the river. But he went straight down, landing on the patch of ice he hadn't seen, and slid no further. Wincing in pain, gasping, he pulled himself to his feet. The man glanced down and saw that this wasn't normal ice. It was reddish-brown. Oh, Christ, he whispered, as he stared at the large patch of blood, which had pooled near the clock and frozen slick. He leaned forward, and his shock deepened when he realized how the blood had gotten there. He saw what looked like bloody fingernail marks on the wooden decking of the pier, as if someone with slashed fingers or wrists had been holding on to keep from falling into the churning waters of the river. He crept to the edge and looked down. No one was floating in the choppy water. He wasn't surprised. If what he imagined was true, the frozen blood meant the poor bastard had been here a while ago, and if he hadn't been saved, his body'd be halfway to Liberty Island by now. Fumbling for his cell phone, he backed away and pulled his glove off with his teeth. A final glance at the clock, then he hurried back to the shed, calling the police with a stubby, quaking finger. Before and After the city was different now, after that morning in September, after the explosions, the huge tails of smoke, the buildings that disappeared. You couldn't deny it. You could talk about the resilience, the metal, the get-back-to-work attitude of New Yorkers, and that was true. But people still paused when planes made that final approach to LaGuardia and seemed a bit lower than normal. You crossed the street wide around an abandoned shopping bag. You weren't surprised to see soldiers or police dressed in dark uniforms carrying black military-style machine guns. The Thanksgiving Day Parade had come and gone without incident, and now Christmas was in full swing, crowds everywhere. But floating atop the festivities, like a reflection in a department store's holiday window, was the persistent image of the towers that no longer were, the people no longer with us. And, of course, the big question— what would happen next? Lincoln Rhyme had his own before and after, and he understood this concept very well. 
There was a time he could walk and function, and then came the time when he could not. One moment he was as healthy as everyone else, searching a crime scene, and a minute later a beam had snapped his neck and left him a C4 quadriplegic, almost completely paralyzed from the shoulders down. Before and after. There are moments that change you forever. And yet Lincoln Rhyme believed if you make too grave an icon of them, then the events become more potent, and the bad guys win. Now, early on a cold Tuesday morning, these were Rhyme's thoughts as he listened to a national public radio announcer, in her unshakable FM voice, report about a parade planned for the day after tomorrow, followed by some ceremonies and meetings of government officials, all of which logically should have been held in the nation's capital. But the up-with-New-York attitude had prevailed, and spectators as well as protesters would be present in force and clogging the streets, making the life of security-sensitive police around Wall Street far more difficult. As with politics, so with sports. Playoffs that should occur in New Jersey were now scheduled for Madison Square Garden, as a display, for some reason, of patriotism. Rhyme wondered cynically if next year's Boston Marathon would be held in New York City. Before and After Rhyme had come to believe that he himself really wasn't much different in the after. His physical condition, his skyline, you could say, had changed, but he was essentially the same person as in the before, a cop and a scientist who was impatient, temperamental, okay, sometimes obnoxious, relentless, and intolerant of incompetence and laziness. He didn't play the gimp card, didn't whine, didn't make an issue of his condition. Though good luck to any building owners who didn't meet the Americans with Disabilities Act requirements.